Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right, hello and welcome everyone. This is uh, Profiles and Strategy, episode 16. I'm uh, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, my colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department at the US Naval War College. First, we have Dr. Jim Holmes, expert on all things naval warfare. Dr. David Stone, expert on all things Russia and, uh, and Europe. And, uh, and new with us this week, um, and new at the department as well, Dr. Jesse Tumblin, who is a British Empire historian. Welcome, welcome, gentlemen. Good to be All here. Right. Awesome. So I thought we would start start off this week um, talking about uh, the course theme, uh, the decision for war. And um, so uh, two of our PhDs this week have differing opinions on on what the decision for war and the causes of war are uh, for um, uh, for the for the start of World War One. Um, you know, uh, Jesse is a little bit more in terms of it was a clash of empires, and uh, you know, uh, Dave Stone a little bit more like, hey, no, it's conscious choice, it's decision for war, and and people making rational calculus based upon national interests. So with that. I thought I'd, we'll kick it off, Dave. We'll, we'll give you the first shot here. At, uh... Well, of course, it goes without saying that Jesse is wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I actually don't think Jesse and I disagree about very much when it comes to the origins of the wars. Um, I mean, and I, I would actually agree with what Jesse has to say in terms of the impact of empires fighting the wars. Um, I'm sort of pushing back um, just to give a, a little of a backstory on this. Um, there's a Vladimir Lenin, who leads the Russian Revolution, writes this famous book during World War II, World War I, sorry, um, about imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism and really leans into empire as a cause for the war. Uh, and it's a very influential book and he makes a lot of interesting points. But one of the things that comes out of that is there's this ongoing just sort of assumption that World War I is really about a clash of imperial interests. Uh, and I'm pushing back against that. I just don't think the evidence sustains that. Um, I mean, certainly empires matter and empires have interests, but when you want to look at what's really going on in the origins of World War I, I don't think imperial causes really get you very far. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and like, like Dave said, I, you know, I don't think we actually disagree in depth here on the broad strokes. I think, um, you know, one way of, of kind of trying to test this, which, which Dave does a really persuasive job of, um, in his lecture is looking at the cases of, of competition for overseas colonies, say, that you see and asking how those end up. And it's very much a dog that doesn't bark when you um, try to understand the causes of the outbreak in, in that dimension. I think the way um, the way I kind of put an imperial interpretation on the war and the way you'll kind of see me do that from the stage is by you know, going a little farther on our balance of power interpretation uh, for understanding the outbreak of the war, both in terms of that German case, and Dave talks about this too, you know, it, Germany's imperial dimension matters quite a bit. 
and the way the other powers in Europe understand Germany's intentions, uh, you know, is attentive to that imperial dimension of um, of Germany itself. And then the thing that that I emphasize as well is is the implications of Ottoman decline. And the way Ottoman decline kind of creates this disruption in equilibrium that the other great powers feel like they have to compete over. And the reasons for that get very empirical, empirical, imperial even when you start digging into them, right? Britain's lines to India, for example, over the land, over the sea, they run through that territory. They feel like they're in a zero sum game with the Russians to kind of compete for what's going on with Ottoman decline. And so you end up with um, a kind of different type of imperial competition that is, it's not really about the overseas colonies and, and, and kind of like Dave was saying, you know, Lenin's thesis is, is about sort of competition for markets and stuff like that. And, it, you know, it's only a way far down the logic chain that Lenin would be, would be right about that. Okay. Uh, Jim, any, uh, any thoughts on this one? Oh no, not not really. As far as the as far as the actual decision for war, I I, I would just, I would just add that uh, it was it's interesting how Mahan actually shaped the the imperial competition on the German side in particular. I mean, he, the Germans were always talking about wanting their their place in the sun of empire. I mean, there was a lot of keeping up with the Joneses that honor that honor motive uh, that, that that we've that we've been talking about repeatedly through the course already. I mean, the, the Germans uh, the Germans had. been closed out of imperial competition they they wanted it in india they, they wanted it in india and they thought their india was going to be in brazil they, they they would talk they would talk in those terms and that's so that's going to be the jewel in the crown of the of the german empire uh, if german imperialists got their way so fascinating to, to, to actually see a big a big brain like mahan actually actually not only shape navy and navies and how and how navies did things but also shaped by geostrategic and geopolitical thinking about the and that and that is certainly that certainly has to figure into the origins of the world certainly not it's certainly not a, not a an, an, an instant cause of it, but has had to be in the background. Hmm. So is it uh, a follow-up question then? Um, is it fair to say that this kind of, um, the German quest for overseas empire and the building of a fleet that that necessitated, um, Dave, you even made this point in, in your lecture about it, it exacerbated the relationship uh, because it was antagonistic to, to Great Britain and they saw it as somewhat of a threat. Um, is that a you know, uh, contributing factor in terms of pushing the British, uh, if they did have a rational calculus about you know, who they go to war with, that it, that it pushes them away from uh, the central powers and towards the, uh, towards the Entente powers? Dave, we'll, we'll start this one with you. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, so Paul Kennedy, whose works we read a ton of, um, in the course, and who was one of my mentors in graduate school, uh, wrote this gigantic book on the rise of the Anglo-German antagonism, where he looks at the, the, the weird transition where Britain and Germany get along just fine for a very long period of time until Germany decides to build an empire. Uh, and the British think this is a problem. And one of the things that, that makes this really stark, and I alluded to this in the lecture, but you can see it in popular culture, um, is that in the middle of the 19th century on into the sort of the, the later part of the 19th century, when the British think about their dangers, um, they think about the perfidious French and potentially a French cross-channel invasion or an imperial conflict with the French. Or, and this is all over Rudyard Kipling, um, when they think about their Indian empire, they think about Russian infiltration and the great game 
competing against the Russians. Um, and yet, when World War I starts, the British are fighting alongside the French and the Russians. And the only reason that happens, and the only way in which it makes sense, is that Germany has managed to alienate the British in some fairly serious ways over the course of about 30 years. Um, and that's a result of some very distinct German decisions about pursuing Weltpolitik, about pursuing empire, and then trying to build uh, a capital ship navy. Mm. Yeah, interesting point. Jesse, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, you know, one of the really interesting kind of backstories to all this, it's a bit meta, but the the scholarly debate about this in the middle of the Cold War was fascinating. I mean, people were absolutely tearing each other apart about this question in the 60s and 70s. There's a famous German historian, Fritz Fischer, who who writes an incendiary book, um, Griff nach der Weltmacht, right? It has this really cool title, like the, the sort of German bid for world power. And it literally um, almost causes a diplomatic crisis in the middle of the Cold War because Fisher's kind of claiming, you know, that th there's this conscious effort to kind of seize world power and it causes a kind of reinterpretation of, um, you know, modern German history that sort of reading, you know, Hitler's ambition backwards into the 19th century and kind of um, seeing that in almost every historical moment in between this conscious kind of bid for world power and you know fisher was he was even supposed to go on a lecture tour in the united states after this book came out and and you know he he and his academic contacts you know he'd hooked up lectures at these you know sort of big american research universities and and actually like the state department gets involved because it's it's such a an incendiary topic in the context of the West German and American relationship that they um, try to get funding pulled for, for Fisher's lecture tour. And he eventually like, he, he managed to cobble some together um, to come give these talks, but it was the stuff of, you know, pretty serious business during the cold war and just kind of shows you the stakes of this question and, you know, how big we're talking historically here, um, what that the stakes of that question look like. And, and right there in the middle of the Cold War, when a lot of the, the archives are being opened for the first time, um, people are really uh, viciously debating this question. Okay, good deal. Uh, Jim, any thoughts? Oh, I think I'll pass on that one. Okay, good deal. So the, um, so as we get into it, they, you know, make this decision for war, all the, all the powers, there's this clash. What's, what's fascinating is all of the initial strategies fail. Uh, Clausewitz and chance and, and friction are on full display. And um, even if you could argue that, that some of them had a good policy strategy match, all of the strategies don't work out the way that it's supposed to. And we find ourselves in this, in this deadlock um, on the, on the Western front and not a lot of whole, um, uh, movement going on in the east although the germans do have some some successes over there when everything gets deadlocked you know that there's there's this tendency of all the powers to just keep keep pushing on a closed door um they you know there are these mass offensive that are that are tried and, and, and slaughter you know tens of thousands like the psalm why isn't naval since this is naval war college the naval question why isn't naval power in talking 1915 used more by all of the belligerents? Not we're not just talking about Britain here, but Germany's got a navy. It's got a very big navy. It spent a lot of time building it in the off in the off years. Why doesn't it do something else with it? Um, 
so uh, Jim, why don't we start this one with you? I always reach for one of my uh, my very favorite uh, works about sea power that we don't study that we don't study with anybody in the in the college here. It was actually translated at the college in 1929 by a gentleman by the name of uh, Vice Admiral Wolfgang Wegener, who served in the in the German high seas fleet, the the battle the battle of the, the battleship fleet, and he uh, he starts off that book by saying, and alluding to your question, he says, "Not one of us understood the sea." Germany is not a traditional sea power. It does. It's not like Great Britain, in which he said, in which he says the the, the Britain the Britons have uh, seawater sea flowing through their veins. They have a sense of how to how to use the sea, do commercially driven sea power, all those sorts of things that we've been talking about uh, in the French Revolution and Empire case, and then of course this week. So I think he I think he was suggesting that Germany just floundered around, and I think that's right. I mean, he he, he analyzes and he said, okay, okay, we, we have this short range, very high, very uh, very well protected and heavily gunned battleship fleet. What for? Is there any value in commanding the North Sea? And he and he, he, he he basically says it's like trying to command the Caspian Sea. It's a dead sea. There's no, there's no purpose. There's no purpose. The only thing they, they basically just uh, built the fleet, and then they assumed that the, the the Royal Navy would come into the North Sea and fight at Trafalgar because that's what the the Royal Navy does. They go into into uh, whatever embattled waters there are and fight at Trafalgar for its own sake, apparently. So, I think that uh, I think they were just sort of they, they were basically just sort of intellectually adrift. Yes, I, 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 I could certainly see them uh, have been uh, trying to be more Corbettian, trying to use that fleet uh, in support of ground, ground operations in France or something, or perhaps, or perhaps trying to outflank, uh, outflank the British blockade. As indeed, and in fact, uh, Volk Wegener will say, if we ever get, if we ever do this again, if we ever decide to to fight Britain again, we better go north to, and, and seize ports in Norway, and we better go south and seize ports in France so that we can outflank the British Isles. And again, guess what? Uh, guess what Hitler's going to do in uh, in nineteen or in, from nineteen thirty nine on? He's he's going to get those flanking positions. But yeah, in, in the nineteen fifteen time frame, it just did, I just don't don't get the sense that they that they had a clear sense of what they ought to do. Mm. So yes, they should have used. Why 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 build something that's a wasted wasting wasting asset? But at the same time, they they had, had no clear sense of what to do with it. Okay, Dave, uh, we'll go to you next. Sure. So I would actually take a little kind of a non-traditional take on this question, um, looking at it from kind of the Eastern point of view as a Russia specialist. Um, first thing, one of the things you said um, was that all the uh, belligerent strategic plans fail at the beginning of the war. And I'm not sure that's true, actually. I think um, in a weird way, the Russians actually achieve um, some of their operational strategic ends. They wanted to do two things. They wanted to beat the Austrians, and they really smashed the Austrian army. The Austrian army never recovers from what happens to it in 1914. Um, and they wanted to save France. And the, the Russian armies that invade East Prussia do succeed in pulling, roughly speaking, about five divisions out of the, the German advance into France, and, and the margin's pretty close in France. And so the Russians, you could say, actually achieve their land objectives. Now, it doesn't get them to the end of the war, but it does at least achieve some short-term objectives. Now, on the naval side, one of the things that I'd really like to do, you know, when I live to be 150 and write all the articles and books that I want to write, um, is looking at Russian amphibious thinking. Because the Russians are thinking about how they can use naval power in the Black Sea and in the Baltic Sea. And in particular, they constantly are thinking about um, a sea assault on Constantinople, on, on Istanbul. Um, and they have an army in the south that could do it. They have a Black Sea fleet. Um, what they can never quite work out is the sustainability. Could they put a, a, a force ashore at the Straits 
and sustain it. And they can never quite get together the assets they think they would need to make it work. Um, and again, I think that's worth writing up. I think it's worth looking at in a little detail because there is some creative thinking going on there. Um, the Russians could really use an opening of the Turkish Straits to get uh, better access to um, uh, Western assistance. This is what Gallipoli was in part intended to do, was to open the Straits from the other direction. Uh, but the Russians thought about it too. And again, it's, it's not a story that, that is very well known, but I think it's one that's worth digging into. And I'll stop with that. Okay. Jesse, any, uh, any thoughts on this one? Sure. Yeah. I, one of the things I think it's useful to kind of think about when we're understanding the Royal Navy during the era of the First World War, specifically, you know, the kind of missed opportunities that were there to kind of get that Trafalgar that uh, that, that Jim was talking about, you know, by analogy and, and given that we're, we're kind of talking during the, the moment of the World Cup, there's some useful points of comparison between um, England's football team historically and the Royal Navy in this specific moment. Right. So um, England football, you know, famously they have, you know, they invented You're talking about game. soccer, right, Jesse? I am talking about the football that you play with your feet. I, <laughs> I, I apologize for bringing it up, but uh, but I, I think it, it can kind of be a useful analogy, um, you know, because because like Britain uh, and its association with sea power, the English, they invent football in their opinion anyway. And, you know, they're supposed to be great at it. And, and sometimes their their teams often are but they have a very complicated relationship with their own home front. Um, their fans and their, and their society, uh, you can tell, they call it the weight of the shirt, right? So when, when England's 11 take the field, you can tell they really feel the weight of the shirt. And I think that was true of Jellicoe too, in the first world war, you know, famously he's the, he's the only man who can lose the war in a day. And you know what the, the Royal Navy pulls off, you know, in that moment is, um, you know, it's it's disappointing to people who are looking for that Trafalgar, right? And, you know, you can even carry the analogy forward to, you know, famously the the English football team, you know, whatever they do, no matter how well they play, they lose to the Germans on penalties, right? And, you know, Jutland even is like that, you know, however well you do on a technicality, um, you know, you, you, you lose the battle, right? So that aspect of sea power, right? The, the investment of money and materiel, but also the real sort of cultural weight behind that for the British Empire. The flip side of that sea power um, is, is the weight of the shirt. And, you know, it's not true um, in every war that Britain fights, but you can feel it when you, um, when you, when you, when you look at Jutland and you, and you can, and you can also feel it in a much diminished way when you are around academics arguing with each other about Jutland. <laughs> so I, so it probably it's probably worthwhile kind of going down that rabbit hole then. Um, so in the course uh, this week, we'll we'll look, take a look at the theories of Sir Julian Corbett, and we'll kind of compare and contrast them a little bit with those of Alfred Thayer Mahan, our our two preeminent sea power theorists. And so some of the some of the things you you mentioned, like when to risk the fleet, the the big battle. Um, which sounds very Mahanian. And then Dave, you brought up Gallipoli, which one could argue is a somewhat of a Corbettian strategy and using the disposal force and, and, and that type of thing. Um, does, you know, is Jutland an example of um, a misapplication of, of Mahanian principles or is it just speak like better as of, of Corbettian principles? And Jesse, since we ended with you, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would I would defer to Jim on this one. Um, you know, 
Mahan and, and Corbett, this is definitely something that's being debated pretty extensively in the Royal Navy leading up to the war. And um, or if not their actual works, then the kind of positions that they represent. And, you know, some of the people in, the uh, you know, with their hands on the reins in the Royal Navy and the years running up to the war, there's a lot of kind of blue sky thinking and a lot of innovation. And, you know, it's it's um, it's an interesting thing about audience that we have to keep in mind when we're talking about Mahan and Corbett, you know, like who they're really signaling to. Um, and, you know, Mahan talking about the British, but the British um, not listening to an extent. Um, and, you know, for, for me as someone who works on the empire, um, there a lot of the ideas that are kicking around before the war are uh, ideas about dispersion and how you get to that climactic naval battle is less clear. Now, they don't pan out the way anybody expects. Um, and it's in large part Churchill who is responsible for kind of making sure that that's the case. Um, and the things about basing, he wants to get everything concentrated on, on the eve of the war. But um, from an imperial perspective, the more that the empire pays into the Royal Navy, the more uh, call there is to kind of get away from that concentrated footprint um, that would deny you the opportunity to do a Trafalgar. Um, and so that that's kind of the the lens I would take on it. But what, whether it's appropriately Mahanian or not, I would defer to Jim on. Okay, actually, let's go to Dave next, and then we'll, we'll end this question. So I, I'm, we, we keep deferring to each other. I'm going to defer to Jesse and Jim on the, on the issues of uh, sort of a second run of Trafalgar. That's where they are really the experts. Um, one of the things I would note, to pick up on a point that Jim made earlier about um, you know, this German view that the Germans never really got sea power and figured out what they wanted. I think to a large degree, you could say the same thing's true about Russian sea power in that um, Russia is a continental power like Germany. Its fundamental interests and its fundamental security concerns are on land. And so a Navy in many ways is a luxury or it's a counter to a potential maritime enemy. And so if you just want to counter a maritime enemy, then it makes sense to have like a U-boat fleet. That, that makes good sense. A battleship fleet Maybe not so much, um, but the Russians consistently in the late empire um, saw a fleet as a prestige item. It was very important to have a Baltic fleet and a Black Sea fleet and a Pacific fleet that could act like a great power is supposed to act without necessarily clearly thinking about what strategic purposes that fleet is supposed to serve. Um, and that kind of failure of thought, I think, is one thing that we can see some, some commonalities between the way the Germans did things and the way the Russians did things. Okay. Uh, Jim. Yeah, just uh, just to add on to what Dave was just saying. In fact, my old uh, German history professor from way back uh, when, Holger Herwig, Her uh, he actually he called his book about the German Navy the luxury fleet. It was it was literally it was literally something that was literally something that the well, I mean, I mean, he he wanted that ships were cool. That was sort of in the sort of in the cult, sort of in the cultural ether back then in a lot of countries, including the United States, with Teddy Roosevelt and, and the other navalists. But uh, but yeah, but yeah, a, a, not every not every nation is cut out to be to be a big Mahanian sea power. Sometimes you're just stuck geographically, and, and Germany, Germany, and the other uh, Northwest European powers are are just stuck as long as Great Britain is the adversary. So. So you, so again, I don't think that I don't think Mahan would uh, would agree that, that Germany was necessarily fit for sea fit for sea power in the sense that he thought it was. The uh, as far as as far as the Mahan versus Corbett thing, I, I think the way to look at the way that I or at least the way I look at it is Mahan is the quintessential builder of sea power, and Corbett is the quintessential user of sea power. 
I my hands up. My hand tells it. He tells us what the purposes of maritime strategy is. It's about commercial, diplomatic, and military access to trading regions where you want to where you want to trade, so that you generate wealth, which in turn you can feed into into supplying the a naval protector for commerce, which 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 amounts to a a, a virtuous cycle that statesmen and commanders should try to set in motion and keep going into the indefinite future. So and that, and this is I mean this is quintessentially grand strategic stuff. Enact wise laws and and, and policies and so forth at peacetime, so that you build up a seafaring industry, extract that, make make best use of your harbors and your natural resource endowment and so forth. To to me though to me though once you start getting down towards the operational level what does what does Mahan really offer about how to use the fleet? Not a whole lot. Win command. Go after go after them and win and win on day one in your enemy's home waters. And this and this is and this is the, this is the maxim that uh, Corbett spends a lot of his time railing against. Yes, I, yes, I, yes, I, yes. This is this if you can do it, but you know what? You're not always going to be the strongest on day one, everywhere on the map at all, at all times. You better you better be you better be much more. Even if you're the Royal Navy, the gold standard for naval power, you better be prepared to be weaker at, at certain times and places, and to figure out how to how to win eventually. Uh, even though even though that you are weaker, this is the idea of active defense, and this is, and this this to me is a much more it's a much more robust and very re and much more realistic way of thinking about uh, how to use uh, how to use naval power. I don't think I actually don't say I actually don't. I actually don't see a whole lot of a place of, of, uh, for a Jutland in the Corbettian scheme. Last point before I should before I shut up, uh, uh, Andrew Lambert over at King's College London wrote a wonderful uh, biography of Corbett, which appeared about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. He maintains that the British leadership in London actually 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 took away the striking arm of the Royal Navy under the traditional British way of war. The, the, the British, and I mean, think about what think about Wellington operating at, with the with the Royal Navy in Iberia in the French Revolution and Empire case that that to Lambert is the is the is the proper British way of warfare. You have sort of a it's the the, the British Army is basically a sort of an expanded Marine Corps. It's a, it's 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 a striking arm of the fleet. Lambert points out that uh, at the outset, at the outset of World War One, the leadership takes that takes that expeditionary force away from the Royal Navy, sends it ashore, bloats it, bloats it into a, into a large land army, and basically leaves the end of the Navy without a striking arm, and thus the ability to shape events on land the way Corbett thinks that that, that the Navy ought to do. So, in, in, in so in a very real sense, uh, uh, Lambert and I think Corbett also was a gat was aghast at how at how the British leadership did things. Which 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 led which led him to be very he, he was actually very uh, sort of agnostic on Gallipoli, he, he he opposed it because he was a Baltic guy he thought they that uh, Britain should throw its effort towards the Baltic but at the same time he really he realized that Churchill and the other architects of the, of the Gallipoli expedition were trying to do things in terms of maritime strategy in the British way of war so okay Dave we'll go to you for reaction yeah uh, sure this is this is more um. A Jesse point, uh, but I think he's he's pretty eloquent on this, um, and that is that as Jim said, the the British army proper ends up dying in France, and so when the British do expeditionary warfare, it's colonials, it's South Africans and Australians and New Zealanders and Indians, um, again almost by default, um, the, the the home troops are, are fighting in France, uh, and so the British turn to what they've got. Uh, and again, this is one of the nice things about a worldwide empire is that it provides worldwide resources for fighting a global war. Mm -hmm. So on the the point about um, we'll, we'll we'll stick with uh, we'll stick with Corbett and the concept of uh, of disposal force. Um, 
the British, since they are a maritime empire, do try to use their their navy to land expeditionary forces in different in different places. They try to go to Gallipoli so they can rescue the Russian Empire, right? Or at least so they think, or you know, establish a, a sea line of communication. Um, and they also try a number of different spots uh, against the Ottoman Empire in other places like uh, like Palestine, uh, Iraq. Um, varying degrees of success on on all of these but uh, churchill as the first lord of the admiralty is is you know wants to show what the navy can do right and he he has this idea about this opening up peripheral campaigns clausewitz tells us that the only reason you should open up a peripheral campaign is when it's exceptionally rewarding to do so um so by the standards of that definition exceptionally rewarding. Are these other places that the British Empire tries to open up um, these, you know, these campaigns? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, and we'll, uh, I tell you what, Jim, why don't we start this one with you? Yeah, that's a, a you omitted uh, two, two of the standards that Clausewitz sets uh, when thinking about secondary theaters. A exceptional reward is only one. I call it, in fact, I call it Clausewitz's three R's. The other, the other, the other two are risk and reward. And he, and he, and he measures, he measures, he's, 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 he wants you to keep your mind, your, keep your eye on risk in the primary theater. That's what he's concerned about. It, so do not, it, it makes no sense to risk something, risk everything in a secondary theater for the sake of what matters most, which is the primary theater. So he says, so he, so he said, he sets that as the standard and he measures that in resources you must have decisive superiority of resources in the primary theater uh before you should even but you should even think about uh, breaking off a, a disposal force and sending it elsewhere so that that to me is one of the most powerful and, and most uh, everyday useful uh passages that, that comes out of Clausewitz. so i use it just about every day personally and i'm sure i'm sure i'm not alone in that so uh so i mean that, that gives you so that gives you a way to think about gallipoli did i mean i mean it's uh, i guess i suppose the Rewards, rewards would have been exceptional had it worked. It obviously, it obviously did not work. I don't think. I don't think it put the Western Front in dire peril of failing. So I think. So I think it actually does clear. It does clear the Clausewitzian bars. But, uh, but again, you have to make it work, and uh, it, it simply did not uh, pan out in execution. Simply because, simply because of geography, because of uh, access denial technology like sea mines and uh, shore-based gunnery, all, all that, all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is a real turning point in that historical revolution that uh, Corbett sees taking place, with new high tech being able to strike heavy blows at capital ships if they if they come within reach. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Dave, any uh, any thoughts on this one? Sure. So I, I think we may have actually found a spot for the first time where I may respectfully disagree with Jim. This is unusual. Normally, we, it's, it's a course of agreements when we're around the table. Um, Clausewitz absolutely does talk about the exceptionally rewarding secondary theater. Um, I would contextualize that um, and point out the way in which Clausewitz is writing in a particular tradition. Um, one of the things that's been kind of floating around military thinking and analysis the last few years has been this idea of a German way of war, that Germany in the center of Europe with enemies on all sides and, and hostile and potentially dangerous frontiers all around has to fight short and decisive and overwhelming wars. And so it makes sense. You absolutely concentrate. You absolutely fight and win decisively and quickly, in which case diluting your forces makes absolutely no sense. Um, Frederick the Great has this great line, which sounds much better in German because German's a language built for this, um, which is like, don't knock smash. Mm -hmm. um, 
And Napoleon, in a similar way, was kind of, you know, concentrate your forces and win overwhelmingly. Um, but if you're not Germany, and if your way of fighting is different, then secondary theaters might have a different kind of risk-reward calculus that you might be able to gamble. Um, and again, Jesse's lecture mentioned this, he can talk more about it, but, um, you know, Gallipoli uses um, expendable colonials and second-rank battleships. So what's the harm? Um, I mean, obviously, the Australian or Australians and New Zealanders may not have looked at it that way. Um, but you can imagine a kind of, like, buy the lottery ticket. What's the worst that could happen kind of approach to these questions? So I'll, I'll leave it at that, and, and, and Jesse may want to expand. Okay. Jesse, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I think it's useful to think about here is to ask sort of what constitutes exceptionally rewarding for, for an empire um, with Britain's footprint and with Britain's priorities. And, you know, the, the logic of the Gallipoli campaign in part includes this question of, you know, you have as, a, as an empire, this gigantic resource pool. Um, and, and technically that material and manpower is available to you in the course of the war. But there are major questions to ask about how you bring that to bear. And when some of these peripheral operations, one of the things that they open up, if they work, is an opportunity to mobilize more of those um, sort of coalition assets within within the empire. And you can also do really valuable work politically as well, because you can kind of forge a sense of imperial unity. This is the theory anyway, through shared service and the accomplishment of great things. And this kind of fits the way Churchill's mind works. You can tell if you look at the way he talks about Gallipoli that he has... Um, you know, he's a sort of classic, classics at autodidact in a sense. He wants Constantinople. He knows that there's glorious and great stuff on the table. And he knows also that, um, if that if this kind of operation can be pulled off, it'll be a great victory for what we might call, um, you know, that, that, that imperial trinity. The problem with this, though, um, as Dave and Jim alluded to, is that when it backfires, um, it has the opposite effect that you intend. And so one of the things that I'll talk about in my lecture is, you know, it's not just that Gallipoli fails and it's not just that Gallipoli is a missed opportunity to, um, you know, forge that identity, let alone a missed opportunity to win the war. It's that Gallipoli actually helps forge the national consciousness of the Turkish Republic, the, the Dominion of Australia, the Dominion of New Zealand. Um, in in the in the in the consequences of that failure, you know, and and it's it's interesting, you know, if you look at today the way it's commemorated, you know, it's Turks and Australians and New Zealanders who go to Gallipoli together to remember that moment a um, hundred years on, and it, it's it's the moment where you can start to see um, the the sort of national identity of the British Dominions converge from or sorry diverge rather from the Empire. So that's kind of um, Another thing that's at stake here in an operation like this, and you know, it, it, it's it's interesting if you look in other more um, smaller scale theaters, you see Australians and Dominion, uh, sorry, Australians and New Zealanders doing amphibious operations in the Pacific, and after Gallipoli, some of the people who serve um, at that front end up in Europe. People like Arthur Curry um, in the Canadian Corps, um, and people like John Menashe um, in the Australian Corps, and once. Um, once the chain of command's out of their way, they distinguish themselves and, you know, win a lot of that renown. But the story changes after Gallipoli. And that has a lot of consequences in a, in a bigger picture sense um, for the, the decline of the British Empire itself. Okay. Dave, we'll go to you first. Mark. 
just one other point um, to make on this question of, of using resources. Um, one of the things about the Western Front in particular is that it's a place where there's a limit to how much useful additional manpower you can put in there. Now, there comes a point when all the belligerents are starting to run out of able-bodied men. That does happen. Um, but it's not necessarily clear in 1914 or 1915 or 1916 that if you put an extra 100,000 men into the Western Front, it's going to make any difference. Whereas those troops might actually do something useful other places um, in the global war. Uh, and so I think that also opens up potential um, for the, the, the imperial powers in particular to try to find ways to, to get around the stalemate on the Western Front. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Jesse. And real quick, just on that same point, you can you can say the same thing too about the ships at Gallipoli, right? You know, would you do you want one more patrol in the North Sea, um, or do you want to use the 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 vessels in question to blast through the Straits? And if you think that that's possible, you take option B every time, and it's that same kind of logic that Dave's talking about. Yeah, well, so uh, Lord Churchill certainly thinks it's possible. Um, but then again, certain historians have also classified him as a meddling minister that didn't know, <laughs> you know, didn't know tactics very well. It just had these, you know, ideas that were completely unsupportable in, in practice. But let's let's take that line of argument just because I want to I want to connect the British historian, the Russia historian, the nail historian here in one in one uh, in one question. Let's take counterfactual and say, OK, fine. Gallipoli is this huge success. They they force the straits. They pull up into Constantinople, fire a couple shells, and knock the Ottoman Empire out of the war. Best case possible scenario. Does that save Russia and the and the what's going on at this point in the in the war? Dave, we'll start this one with you. Yeah. So I mean, there's uh, the, the counterfactuals are always hard, and this is a particularly tough one uh, because Gallipoli takes place at a point you know, two years before Russia falls apart. Um, and so it takes a long time for Russia's economic problems to bring it down. And so if the Straits had been opened and the Allies could get war material into Russia through the South, um, maybe over the longer run, Russia does better, but there's a, a whole lot of other changes that go along with that. Um, the big obstacle is thinking about um, whether the fall of Ottoman Turkey and opening up the Straits actually gets you closer to centers of gravity of the Central Powers. Um, because given the terrain of the Balkans um, and all the evidence of fighting in the Balkans in the First World War, you don't really move very fast and you don't go very far. Um, and so the thought of fighting your way to Budapest or Vienna, let alone Berlin, by going through the Balkans is not a real attractive prospect. So I'm not certain that even if Gallipoli works, it actually changes things that quickly. Now, certainly it would change some of the calculations of the minor neutrals in the Balkans. Romania, for example, probably would have joined the war on the Allied side earlier. Um, but again, I don't see it as a, even if it works, I don't see it as a slam dunk that changes the outcome of the war, at least in the short term. Hmm. So and that's interesting because by that logic then that, um, you know, risk, yes, reward, yes, but exceptionally rewarding, not. <laughs> well, and, and again, it gets to your, it gets to what your priorities are. Um, you know, if you are, um, you know, sort of Winston Churchill, or if you're sort of thinking in imperial terms for the British, then the fall of the Ottoman Empire might be a fantastic thing for imperial goals. Doesn't necessarily mean you win the war against Germany and Austria-Hungary, right. but if you pick up, you know, sort of colonial possessions or the, the, the empire becomes more secure, then that's an entirely different question. Yeah. Jim, we'll go to you uh, next. 
Yeah, just a real brief one along those lines. Yeah, I think that uh, I think if you looked at it as a potential uh, war by contingent, I think that's probably that, that's probably the way to look at that one. Maybe it's a, sometimes sometimes uh, opening up a new theater and just making it making chaos for your major adversary. It's, I mean that that's a good that's a good thing right there. Even if you don't have definite aims in mind, that's a war, that's what a war by contingent is. Bleeding your adversary, major adversary, Germany, uh, somewhere around the periphery, and thus contributing through limited war to to the outcome of, a, of an unlimited war by bleeding him by just simply sowing may mm -hmm. okay um jesse anything to add on this one yeah sure i i think um I, I should say you know i'm extremely skeptical about every step in the gallipoli plan um start to finish but it's a counterfactual so let let's throw all that away you know let's say this is radically successful um you know all of it works exactly the way it's intended and you win the war that way i think even if we take all of that on board and we look a little bit ahead to what actually happens and try to deduce some things from that, I'm extremely skeptical that it's the British Empire that's going to benefit from all of this. Um, in a scenario where all of this is radically successful, and even say you have no Bolshevik revolution, I think as likely as anything else is 1945 in 1918. An Iron Curtain kind of descending over Europe uh, but a czarist one instead of a communist one. Because if anybody's going to get Constantinople or something like that, it's not going to be the British. Um, and their ability to take on massive amounts of new colonial territory in the Middle East after the First World War, they do a poor job attempting to hang on to that, um, pacify it, maintain order within it. And the Balkans are going to be even worse, uh, you know, if they, if they try that. If anybody's going to be involved there, and really win big from it over the long term, it's probably going to be Russia and not and not Britain. So I think it brings us to the to the question of, um, you know, when it when when things do get very bad and they and they collapse, they first collapse on the Eastern Front and not because of the brilliance of uh, of uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, but because of internal troubles in in Russia. And Dave, you know, so a lot of things happen in, uh, in Russia, the front falls apart, new communist government in Russia wants nothing to do with the war, sign the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And this is like the most, um, what's the word for it? Stringent peace terms that you could, uh, you know, in some ways it's worse than, than Versailles, right? Um, this certainly doesn't subscribe to the the uh, the winning the peace uh, type course theme that we talk about here. Any any thoughts that you want to you know say on on Brest-Litovsk and how that could have gone differently? Sure. So so two observations. One, I, I made um, I made this point um, when I did my book on the Eastern Front is that um, all the empires end up on the verge of collapse. Like there's a race to collapse. Um, and just as an example of this, even the British Empire, which seems to be doing okay, um, you know, the Easter Rising um, in Dublin, um, now, obviously, the British put that down really quickly, but they can't conscript in Ireland after that. You know, they, they can't draft out of Ireland. And that's a big chunk of the British Empire where that's a sort of, that is no more a source of manpower in terms of conscription for them. Um, the French army mutinies in the summer of 1917. Um, Austria, Hungary, and Germany both eventually fall apart from internal uh, unrest. So all the empires are racing towards collapse. And it just happens to be that the Russians win the race to collapse. Uh, and but because that happens, then they lose the war first and they get the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk inflicted on them by the Germans. Um, 
And it's, it is really striking. Uh, and again, um, I'll make this point next week when I talk about the interwar period. Um, it's all well and good to say the Treaty of Versailles was terribly, terribly cruel to Germany. I don't think it was actually that cruel, but the Germans intended to do much worse. Um, and you know, when you look at German uh, war aims and what they actually were able to inflict on Romania and on Russia um, when they did win victories, um, it's not pretty. I mean, one of the ironies is that the Russian empire was reduced to more or less what Russia is now. Um, they lose Belarus, they lose the Baltics, they lose Ukraine, all that kind of taken away from them uh, and made into a German protectorate for a short period of time until Germany loses the war. Um, now, the Germans are never able to get the resources out of this that they want. They don't have enough time. Um, now, whether they could in the longer term, that's another question. But again, every empire is racing towards collapse and Germany collapses before it's able to really integrate that conquered territory into its economy and use it to fix its economic problems back home. Hmm. So at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk kind of brings us to how you end the war in uh, on the Western Front. And, and um, you know, the, the peace at Versailles is one of these uh, now much written about things about, uh, you know, what what happened and, and, and uh, what could have been done differently. We talk a lot about winning the peace and we have the, the Liddell Hart quote that we use often in, in terms of, you know, establish a better state of peace, even if you're, even if from your, only from your own point of view, um, how, how could Versailles have gone differently so as not to, to lay the groundwork for the next war? Was there, was there any better peace that could have been achieved there uh, in, uh, in everyone's opinion that might've, uh, you know, somehow, some way, prevented uh, what was to come. Dave, why don't we, why don't we, I know it's a tough question, but let's start this one with you. Yeah, so again, stay tuned, because uh, next week I'll, I'm gonna be in my lecture, I'm gonna talk about this quite a bit. Um, and I kind of stake out a position as um, Versailles as the least terrible option of a bunch of, bunch of terrible options. Um, given that, given the nature of European politics, the constraints on the policymakers, I don't see a great piece coming out of this. Um, and at one point, I mean, I'll just go back to kind of fundamental balance of power considerations. Germany in the center of Europe with all of its population resources and industrial might, Germany will be the dominant power in Europe no matter what you do. Particularly since Russia's off the table, Russia's in the middle of its own internal um, chaos after the revolution, Germany will inherently be Europe's strongest power. And there's nothing you can do to change that unless you're gonna partition Germany into a bunch of little different states or do a, a Morgenthau plan in advance and deindustrial, none of those things are on the table. None of those things can be done. So Germany will still be a problem and the British and the French and the Americans can't get their act together about how to deal with it. And I don't see how you fix that problem. Um, and so to my mind, there's no good solution to the Versailles problem. And the one that they come up with isn't to me egregiously worse than any of the other options that might've been on the table. Okay, Jim. Any uh, any thoughts on this one? Well, you get the piece you enforce. I mean, they, they, I guess the answer is uh, Versailles might have worked very well if anybody had enforced it, and nobody did, which I which I think is the, is the key point. I mean, as I, the Allies fall egregiously short on that on that last uh, that last uh, part of our part of our template for thinking about war termination. Who's going to enforce the peace, and for how long? By the way, I mean that's this is one this is one key thing to bear in mind. Into a scrap with somebody, we better we better already be thinking about value of the object calculations for the post-war era. 
do we actually care about the peace long enough to stay engaged, hold down the hold down the defeated, and so forth? The uh, just uh, just one brief one from uh, Henry Kissinger uh, uh, in diplomacy. I think he was talking about the Congress of Vienna, most likely, uh, or perhaps in his book World, "A World Restored." I can't remember which one it was, but the uh, he basically says there's there's two due to fashion a durable peace. One fashion about a balance of pe- of power. The adversary hold the adversary down militarily and diplomatically, and two try to fashion a, a settlement that the 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 defeated see as just or at least acceptable as a way of uh, of adjusting uh, dis- disputes in the future. If they, but uh, but he, what he doesn't say, and I think it actually comes out here, is that if if the adversary refuses to see the arrangement as just, even if it is. You're, you're 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 back you're back into holding them, and you you really have to mount a major effort to do that. So, but so I, I'm with Dave. I don't I don't actually, you know, I don't like the war guilt clause. I don't like the you know I don't like the reparations and all that kind of stuff, or at least on the scale they were imposed on Germany. But, but at the same time, that this was not this was nothing compared to what Germany had in mind for 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 conquered territories. I, if we if we had enforced it, I think it would have been a a, a decent settlement. Okay, sorry, Jim, you, you cut out for part of that. The, the first uh, uh, rule for Kissinger was fashion a peace that you can enforce. Is that is that right? Yeah, fashion a balance, it's balance of power whereby the victors keep to hold down the vanquished. Yeah, it's a yeah. So so yeah, there's a so there, there's an element of force, the diplomacy, and especially and especially force, and then there's an element of justice. If you can get if you can basically co-opt the defeated into into accept. Much has happened with uh, post-Napoleonic France, uh, which is one reason one reason that Kissinger and others who study that uh, think that that was a durable settlement. One of the one of the few we'll see in the course, actually. Okay, okay. Um, Jesse, any any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, um, just a couple quick things. You know, John Maynard Keynes, who's kind of the British, um, you know, bean counter in chief, who's there at Versailles. You know, he makes this sort of classic. Um, critique that, you know, what do you have here if you break the economy of Europe? Um, And so he kind of does read those tea leaves. And, you know, we'll talk about this more definitely in our in our interwar case of what those big picture economic questions look like. But, you know, this also throws everything into turmoil politically and ideologically as well. Um, It's not just that there's nobody there to you know, enforce the post-war sediment, you know that that's definitely problem number one. But it's that these ideas unleash things um, in in the international system that can't you can't kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube on something like self determination. You know, you can say all day that this only applies to the people we just beat, um, but it it really unleashes ideas that are gonna end up um, helping erode. You know, Dave was was kind of talking about the Russians um, sort of winning the race to collapse, you know, that the accelerator gets pushed down again by, by these ideas. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it, it's, it's the lack of American enforcement, but it's also the, the lack of American ideological um, enforcement, both at home and abroad that, you know, is missing in that post-war settlement because um, the balance of power that you have been relying on for over a century to kind of keep that peace it not it's not just that it's gone after 1918 it's that it becomes radically more complicated to come up with because there's so many more moving parts right um lord curzon who's the british foreign secretary you know he calls the um he calls the post war settlement the the unmixing of people because there's so many people on the wrong side of some new line um and how to untangle that knot is uh the level of complexity becomes 
impossible to deal with, you know, um, Bismarck's notion that you've got five great powers. So be on the side of three, right? That's a lot harder to make those kind of calculations when you got 57 moving parts and not five. Mm -hmm. Okay. So shifting, shifting forward here in the, in the time we have remaining to um, what this war means for the contemporary realm. And uh, so Dave, we just talked about the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and this has a profound effect on Vladimir Putin that has, has shaped his outlook today. And um, so as our, as our final kind of um, uh, question here in terms of what we see now with, with happening between Russia and Ukraine, um, but, you know, first off, how, how Brest-Litovsk has, uh, uh, has affected Putin. Dave, uh, you want to? So what I would say in, in, the, in the longer term, the really striking thing about the end of World War I um, in Central and Eastern Europe is that everybody loses. It's kind of bizarre and weird to have a war where everyone loses. Russia falls apart, Germany, German Empire falls apart, the Austrian Empire falls apart, and the Ottoman Empire falls apart. The four big empires of Eastern Europe all disintegrate at different times, but they end up all disintegrating. And that creates a space for all of these smaller peoples to achieve independence and autonomy in, in various forms that really would not have been possible if Germany won the war or if Russia in conjunction with the Entente had won the war, then we'd be looking at something very, very different. And so in a sense, I think the longer term origins of um, the, the Central and Eastern Europe that we see now of lots and lots of smaller national states in many ways is an outgrowth of the outcome of World War I, which shattered once and for all the idea of these big multinational empires um, determining the, the layout of, of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, now, that's a, a kind of, that's speaking from the Mount Olympus heights of the, you know, the, the destiny of Europe over the centuries. But I do think it is a striking thing that all four empires lose, all four empires disintegrate, and then that creates conditions for what happens later. Um, and so you can imagine then an independent Poland or an independent Ukraine, which has these brief moments of existence before the Bolsheviks um, crush it and bring it back under Moscow's control. Um, but it's this moment that shows possibilities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And when, when Putin says that he gives that quote a few years back where, hey, we lost to the losers in World War I. Um, so what do you think, how do you think that that kind of has affected his, the decisions he's making and the, and the, the, the conflict we see now today, how does this, how has World War I kind of, kind of shaped that for him? Well, the specific thing, I mean, Putin, you know, was raised a Marxist, but is clearly no fan of Lenin. He sees Lenin as the destroyer of a Russian state. Um, the big, best way to think about Putin, I think, is not as a Russian nationalist, but as a, 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 a partisan of the Russian state, um, in some ways a Russian empire, but a multinational, powerful Russian state. And Lenin destroyed that Russian state. He blew it up in 1917, uh, and Putin sees the consequences of that everywhere. And so I think in, in some ways he's trying to undo the verdict of 1917. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, Jim, any, any thoughts on contemporary relevance for World War I, what we can learn from it, especially vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, contemporary challenges? Oh sure, yeah. I've, I've been I've been writing about the about the similarities and differences between the uh, the, the PLA Navy, the up and coming PLA Navy, and, and Germany's Navy for for pushing twenty years now. There's been a cottage industry of people who make this connection, looking at the geographic circumstances of Germany vis a vis a vis China, which are somewhat 
Well, I mean, in in, in some circumstances, uh, uh, China's uh, China's position is actually even worse than Germany's, because simply because of the first island chain, all, all that kind of stuff. We'll talk uh, to talk about as we as the course wears on. As far as the as far as the the, the bigger dimension, I, I think it was in two thousand and four. The, the China China Central TV commissioned a series of books and uh, related uh, TV programs for for white consumption by the Chinese people rise of great powers and in a, in a volume for one of the cases they studied was uh sort of a twofold case bismarck's germany and then and then uh, the the, uh, the the kaiser's germany trying to figure out what to learn from these cases as china managed its own rise and the the, the overall the overall takeaway they wanted people to to get out of this was we're going to be like uh, Bismarck's Germany. We're safe. We're we're satisfied. We're not going to abuse our neighbors, and so on and so forth. And and thus, if they if they did that, they could avoid uh, fueling uh, antagonism towards uh, China's rise on the part of the United States and its allies in the region. And and the related point was they wanted to send the message that we are not that we are not the Kaiser's Germany that's going to march Asia over the precipice in the war. Now, yes, I think that was a, that was very worth that was really a worthwhile project. I thought. But I, I will say, in, re, in recent years, we know that uh, Xi Jinping is now is now uh, ten years into his tenure with the, with no end in sight. You, I think you've actually you've actually seen a willingness to be seen more, more like more like more like the Kaiser. The, the, the restraint has pretty much come off, and uh, it, it leaves you wondering exactly what so what's going to happen because uh, because China is willing to actually you know, try to take territory otherwise to take resources and so forth from its uh, from its neighbors. And it does it feels much more like Imperial Germany under the under the Kaiser than it did a, a decade ago when it did seem more like a Bismarck's Germany. And that was and that was actually kind of a positive thing I thought. But uh, but yeah, so there's a, there's a historical marker indicating what what China might be on. Okay, good stuff, Jesse. Any thoughts on contemporary relevance? Sure. Yeah, two two quick things. You know, one kind of echoing the the picture that Dave kind of painted of the modern um, East of Europe. You know, I think you you can also kind of do that exercise for the modern Middle East. You know, the the legacy of this war is so apparent in the modern Middle East, um, both in the terms of the actual borders of the states that exist there now, but also in terms of the conflicts. You know, I'm going to talk about this in my interwar lecture, but um, the Sykes-Picot Treaty is something that directly and prominently features in ISIS's propaganda and marketing videos. And so there's an extremely direct link between the kind of um, you know crises and problems that are still going on today and you know the legacy of the First World War in the Middle East. Um, the other and sort of more universal thing I think that 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 really sticks out is that question of the decision for war in the first place. Um, I, I really like reading cultural histories of the First World War in part because they get you into the headspace of trying to understand what it was like to be on the left and the right of Bang in 1914. And to understand the world that um, that was before the war broke out. I really love um, Stefan Zweig's The World of Yesterday for kind of painting that picture of um, the world before the war. And the, the looming sense of inevitability that people have, that there's going to be a war, which doesn't apply to everyone, but is in the water for certain important people. That's what I think is really worth being attentive to about the 1914 moment today, is to understand... Um, you know, the the real choice that people have, that they're not inevitably locked into um, a path dependent on a war outcome. 
And that's, I think, an enduring lesson of the First World War is to look at the real sort of confusion about why the war happens and the real debate that we can still have about that and understand the, the complexity of that question today and, and, and the choices available to us. Outstanding. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your time. It was a very inter interesting and entertaining discussion, as always. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. And pleasure. Thanks, John.